Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorha, and welcome to IMDb's Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is Gillian Jacobs. You may know her as her role as Britta in the cult classic TV show Community, but you will soon be able to see her as Kate in the upcoming film, I Used to Go Here, which will be released on August 7th. Gillian and I talk about her first bad onstage review, the episode of an upcoming Marvel Disney Plus documentary TV show that she directed, and the three movies that changed her life. Once again, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to give us a star rating and leave us a review because every single one counts. Thanks to Phil Orts, Scarlett O2, Matt HH01, Apex Triplet, and Mike and Cassandra Morano for giving us the most recent five-star reviews. I do want to give an extra shout-out to Mike and Cassandra as they left a particularly stellar review, including the fact that they have seen almost 4,000 films. So again, extra thank you to Mike and Cassandra. And here's Movies That Changed My Life with Gillian Jacobs. So let's get into it. So I used to go here. Um, I got a chance to watch it. So, so fun. Um, why don't you, for those who aren't familiar with it, why don't you tell us uh, what the film is about and who you play? Yeah, so I play a woman named Kate who um, has published a novel um, and thinks it's going to be this huge moment in her life. She was engaged. She had this novel coming out. She was going to reach this new level in her professional life and her personal life, and nothing is going according to plan. So she has broken up with her fiancé. The book does not get very good reviews. Her whole press tour is canceled. She's feeling very down, and she gets a call from her old professor asking her to come down um, to her alma mater and give a talk. And it's, it is now her only <laughs> opportunity to talk about the book. So she goes back to the college, and she feels like a big deal, and she's being feted. And um, it's a good ego boost for her. And she's very nostalgically goes and wants to look at the house where she used to live in college and sort of gets um, invited in by the current group of students and is sort of having this moment of like, is she going to sort of, um, is it, it was the best version of herself in college? And is she going to sort of like get back in touch with that fun, carefree, easygoing side of herself by becoming friends with all these current college students? Is she really just kind of running away from her life and her problems? Um, and is that too long of a description? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. Okay. <laughs> but I think it's got a great cast and Chris Ray wrote and directed it. Um, and uh, so, yes, that's, that's, I used to go here. 
That was the perfect summer. Okay, great. Uh, this was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest. Yes. Obviously, South by Southwest got canceled, but uh, it still got a ton of really, really great early reviews from people who saw the digital screeners. And basically, the through line through all of that was is a, a painfully like realistic look at like a millennials like dreams getting mm-hmm. getting crushed over and over and over again. Um, uh, what was it like for you, sort of, sort of uh, getting to act out those roles of all these like nightmares? Did it bring you back to when you were first starting up, become trying to become an actress at all? <laughs> um, oh, definitely. And I, I mean, I had a very different relationship to the college that I went to. Um, right. So I, you know, I don't have those like. Um, super nostalgic feelings. Um, I, I, you know, I went to Juilliard, which is in Lincoln Center. And I remember not long after I graduated from college, I auditioned for a play at Lincoln Center and the mere sight of the building of Juilliard made my knees shake and I bombed the audition. (laughs) So um, certainly I don't have that relationship to it, but I do, um, you know, I do relate to the, all the tiny little terrible things going wrong all the time. <laughs> so the professor and your character's old mentor is played by Jemaine Clement. Uh, folks, if you're not familiar with the name, you might probably know him from Flight of the Concords, things like that. You two on screen, uh, you're so funny together. Your little quips back and forth and and you know the, the overall story that ends up showing up through the rest of the movie. Uh, what was it like working with Jermaine? I just um, adore set? him. And I have to say, I think season two of What We Do in the Shadows, which is a TV adaptation yes. of a movie yes. and he, he, you know, runs this TV show. I think it is some of the best TV on currently. And I was so excited that it got like three writing nominations from the Emmys mm-hmm. because yeah, I think it is of one of my favorite TV shows. Um, I think he is brilliant. He's hilarious. He's kind. I, we were so lucky to have him in this film. Um, it's just a pleasure to get to work with him. He's someone I've admired for a long time. Um, I used to live in New York before, like my character Brit on Community, I lived in New York. And um, I used to see Jermaine um, and Britt uh, walking around Williamsburg when they were making Flight of the Concords. And I was always so starstruck whenever I would see them, you know, so then to be in a scene with him, I guess it's kind of like my character's relationship where she like had this very admiring um, relationship to this professor. And now he's asking her if she wants to work there. Do they want to be colleagues? So I could totally relate to being starstruck by Jermaine. So the director, Chris Ray, uh, I was doing some research search on her and she actually went to film school in Carbondale, uh, where the film takes place. So was there like an autobiographical portion to the experience there? I think there was a bit, or the the seed, the genesis of the film, I think, yes, came from a, um, a, a trip back and a relationship to that. And, you know, she also, uh, I think teaches at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll, actually a lot of her students and former students worked on the movie where PAs oh. were in different departments. So, um, I think she's having kind of had that experience in the last couple of years of going back to her former college as now, you know, the successful director and now also teaching at Northwestern. Your character, Kate, like you said, you, when you go to the school, um, all the other literary students, uh, of the college, they sort of look up to your character, Kate, they want them to go through the resumes. I want to talk to her about, Oh, what's it like to be a success, successful, uh, author. And, um, you know, in the film, 
you are acting alongside a lot of the college students are earlier in their acting careers. Um, so was there some sort of parallel, like off, uh, off screen of you being like, you know, the actor who, uh, you know, she's on these films, she's on these hit TV shows and all sorts of stuff. When they were sort of like treating you sort of in a similar way to your character, Kate on screen. You know, what's so funny is that Hannah Marks plays like the star student, mm-hmm. um, and my character is very jealous of her. Then Hannah's character wants my character's approval. In real life, Hannah has written and directed more films than I have, you know, <laughs> and she is this just complete powerhouse. And when we were, um, when we were making the movie, she's like, I wrote the script. I think I just want to make it for really cheap. I don't know. I don't know. Should I do that? And, you know, by the end of the calendar year, she had directed this feature and I basically begged to be in it. So I'm in one scene of her film. So it felt like a very real life pair. They don't need my advice. I think this cast (laughs) is incredible. Um, I adored them. I didn't know any of them going into the film and I just kind of, it was similar to the movie in that I was just fell in love with them and um, they, they don't, no, I no <laughs> revering me. They they have so much more figured out. All right. Well, I used to go here. Comes out August seventh. Um, any any last words on it before we move on? Please watch it and please tell your friends. Yes, I'm gonna do the. I remember I did this movie um, with Mike Birbiglia, um, and we did like a very indie press tour for it, and we did so many Q and As, and Mike would always be like watch the movie and then like tell 10 of your friends to watch it. So I'm going to do that. Did you do the classic Mike Birbiglia? Like, please watch it and please like tell 10 of your friends to watch it. (laughs) Perfect. All right. So let's uh, go into the movies that changed your life. Let's go in chronological order of release. You have three awesomely different movies. I'm very (laughs) excited to talk about all three of these. Uh, Do you want to go in chronological order of release or do you want to go um, in, do you have a specific order in your head in which you want to? No, whatever you want. Perfect. All right, let's go in chronological order of release. William Shakespeare, um, it is based off the play, but the screenplay was written by uh, Charles Kenyon. And it is starring James Cagney, Dick Powell, Olivia de Havilland, and a very young Mickey Rooney. And this is based off of William Shakespeare's classic comedy uh, that revolves a conflict before a love story, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so talk to me. What, 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 how did you come across this? And when was the first time you watched this? This was a classic rental from the library. I love that. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because I picked this movie and then I was like, this is going to seem very out of left field because I've never done Shakespeare professionally since I graduated college. But one of the things that really made me want to be an actor as a child was that I fell in love with Shakespeare. And so this movie and also Kenneth Branagh's um, Much Ado About Mm -hmm. Nothing were two movies that I saw as a kid that made me fall in love with Shakespeare. And so I first, you know, um, I did a lot of theater growing up and I was, I was in some Shakespeare plays as a kid. And so, um, this movie also just, I was, uh, you know, it's got very early special effects, <laughs> like 1930s special effects, but as a child, they were still very magical to me. It really did evoke the, like they're in a magical forest feeling inside, And I also have to confess that I had an ulterior motive when I picked this, which is that I had had this longstanding dream to interview Olivia de Havilland. And I picked this film for you guys, sadly, before she just passed away at 104. 
And I had a vision in my mind that we were going to talk about this on the podcast. And I was going to talk about how I wanted to interview Olivia de Havilland. And then that was somehow going to happen. <laughs> um, and now she sadly passed away and I've missed my chance. But um, I also um, think she's just, I, you know, there've been a lot of articles about not only her acting career, but how she like sued um, Warner Brothers, I think, and changed um, labor laws. And um, so I just thought I, I, I was going to use this podcast to try and um, meet Olivia de Havilland. Well, let's still use it as your way to honor her. I guess it's kind of fitting that I, I have picked the oldest film that you have talked about um, on this podcast because I wrote this um, article about this uh, screenwriter, Anita Luce, a few years ago, and that sort of sparked an interest um, in learning about the early silent mm. era. I mean, this is slightly later, sure. but um, learning about um, the the earliest days of Hollywood. And so I I just really wanted to talk to Olivia de Havilland because she was, you know, one of those last people left who was there making films in these mm. early days of Hollywood. And you, you talked about the special effects being like very 1935. Like the first note I wrote um, is... Imagine watching this in 1935. Like your mind would be blown. Your, your mind is blown, especially the first time when they're seeing the fairies. Uh, how they yes. have sort of have the overlay and people are coming out of the fog. Like that is, I mean, for me watching, I'm like this is pretty crazy to see. Uh, imagine seeing it in theater. Then it's nuts. I know, and it had a similar effect on me as a child. Yeah. <laughs> so it it was still effective. I think I don't know if if kids now. <laughs> would be wowed by it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. their standards for special effects are a lot higher than mine was as right. a child. But right. for me, it was still, um, it was like, it was magical. Yeah. I just, I don't know what it was about Shakespeare that really just spoke to me as a child, but it, it really like made me so excited. <laughs> Is that so weird to say? No, no, that no, I no. was like a child who was so obsessed with Shakespeare and my parents would get me like abridged like children's versions of Shakespeare plays and I would read them and I would go and try and see every Shakespeare production I could in Pittsburgh um and I had a complete works of Shakespeare and so yeah like I said and and then another just like lightning bolt moment for my brain was seeing Emma Thompson in Mm. um in Much Ado About Nothing and I just wanted to be Emma Thompson um just and still do. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't quite understand what they were saying. Like, sure. it wasn't like I was like <laughs> analyzing know, under- the, the rhythm of the, of everything. <laughs> yeah. I got enough of it and there was just something about it that just really, um, made me so excited about acting. And then, like I said, I have not done any Shakespeare since college. So, um, it, it, it probably not what people would, you know, first think of when they, they would think of me, but, um, yeah, I just vividly remember, I was just trying to, you know, you're, I was trying to, when I was thinking about your podcast and the title of it, and I was trying to think about moments in my life where Mm -hmm. I saw something on screen and it really just stopped me in my tracks. And so I do think that, that this movie and Shakespeare, um, for me as a child was one of those things. Well, your first, uh, were your first stage acting role when you were a kid or one of your earliest, uh, when you're in Pittsburgh was for a midsummer night's dream. Was it not? Oh, I was, oh, well that, yes, I was terribly miscast. That was, <laughs> so you were, I, you were cast to play Titania. Is it, that's correct? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was still in high school Okay. and I got some brutal reviews, Oh no! Um, but it taught me a good lesson. 
Um, yeah, I knew I was miscast. <laughs> I ooh, I did not live up to the to uh, yeah the role um, in my portrayal of Titania as as a high school student. In a, I mean, like I was in you know I, I was so lucky in that I was in a professional production with adults, professional actors. Um, but I was not very good. <laughs> but it's still uh, when you finally got to perform in the role, was that sort of like a dream, uh, no pun intended, pun intended maybe, come true for uh, <laughs> uh, for you as a young actor? It was, but it was also like... Terrifying. Sometimes you know when you're not right for something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I don't think this was a great idea. Sure. So it's also, it's that's the thing about um, doing a play is that the reviews come out and then you still have to keep doing it. Right. You can't just, you know? you can't just ignore the, the movie for the rest of the rest of the time. Right. Yeah. So that was a good, I remember my acting teacher um, got me this book called No Turn Unstoned, which I think Diana Rigg, the actress, uh, compiled really bad reviews of very famous actors. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a really amazing thing that my acting teacher, Ingrid Sonicson, did for me because it really put it in perspective of like, you're joining a long line of, of actors who've gotten really terrible reviews and they kept going. And so can you. And I also remember her saying like, cause you, you know, you can either choose to just be miserable for the rest of the run of the show, knowing like I got bad reviews and I think they were deserved, or you can take it as an opportunity when you're doing a play to keep um, trying to figure out the character and the scenes and really use it to try and get better. And so I remember, I don't know how much better I got, but I at least was like, this is, a, this is something like I have a goal. I have something to be active about. I'm going to keep trying to get better um, as this play goes on. But I do remember I took a, um, I took a, a class in theater criticism um, not long after this production. And so our like big thing was that we went into the office of the critic who had given me a really oh, terrible review. No. And so then I was there with my class, my fellow students who are learning how to write theater criticism. And I was in the office of the guy <laughs> who had given me a really bad review. Did you reveal yourself? Was there some sort of he like, knew. he oh, knew, no. he knew. Um, and I think I think he said something like, I heard you got better. I'm sad I didn't get to see it again or something <laughs> okay. like that, which was very kind of yes, him. I don't know nice how much say. better I ever got. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe going, tying it back to I used to go here, you know, my character yeah. gets bad reviews for her book and has to keep going. Exactly. I got bad reviews, you know, as a high school student and, and had to keep going. It all ties together. It all ties together. It all ties together. It would be funny now to like get another shot at Titania. I don't know if I still have it figured out, but I think I'd be better than I was at 16. (laughs) Uh, We need to make that happen. And then we need to find that critic and make sure uh, they are in attendance front row. I want to say that the the review was justified. It's not like I'm saying it was like an unfair review. You know what I mean? It was one I read and I said, I read it and I thought, that's okay. right. That's correct. <laughs> I'm not good. I'm not good in this. Well, uh, we are glad that you kept forward and you did not uh, give up the dream right there. So fantastic. <laughs> the Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, someone who did not get bad reviews in my book in A Midsummer Night's Dream is the young Mickey Rooney 
as Puck. Everything about it is horrifying and like spellbinding at the same time. Yeah. yeah, the way he laughs, like he's cackling, like running around, like with his little horns. Like, what a bizarre thing to see. I think, you know, it's also one of those things where you were captivated by it ch- as a child and you watch it as an adult and you're like, what is this? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes you take a big swing as an actor and you need, you're really putting yourself in the hands of the director and the editor. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it works in very different ways, but it is yes. a very fun watch to see. Well, yeah, I was going to say that I also realized after I sent my list for you that there is a, there's a slight theme. I don't want to reveal another okay. movie. Okay. But maybe I also think seeing him as a child or a young teenager in this movie also gave me as a child an idea that you could be children could be actors. Ah, okay. Okay. Very nice. Okay. We will, we will tie back to that. Uh, it probably did actually, honestly. And, and yeah. he give, gives it his all. No question then about that. It, that's a very kind way to say it. Gives it his all. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. All right, let's move on to your second pick. Uh, This is from 1975. It is a Robert Altman classic, Nashville. 7.7 out of 10 with 22,000 reviews on IMDb. Directed by Robert Altman and written by Joan Tewksbury. uh, Starring 24 people, so it's kind of hard to say, but Keith Carradine, Karen Black, Ronnie Blakely, Lily Tomlin, a young Jeff Goldblum pops up in some parts. Uh, It is a satire musical comedy that, again, follows the lives of 24 people who are all involved in the gospel and country music scene in Nashville, Tennessee. Nominated for five Academy Awards, won Best Original Song, and it got nominated for 11 Golden Globes also, which at the time was the record for one movie. Um, Thank you for letting me revisit this movie. Uh, (laughs) I haven't seen it in so long, but but talk to us. Uh, When was the first time you saw Nashville? Well, now I'm realizing this is also Ingrid Sonicson. So my same acting teacher um, that gave me the book of all the bad reviews. Also, I remember for some reason she had a copy of Nashville and I watched it and it was just another, I was, you know, my criteria for this podcast was a moment where I was just stopped in my tracks. Yeah, that's a great criteria. (laughs) And I had never seen a movie like this. I had never seen a Robert Altman movie before. I didn't know that this genre of film existed where it was this expansive cast and, you know, what everybody else would know as classic Altman style of overlapping dialogue and these interweaving characters. And um, I think I was familiar with Lily Tomlin from like laughing, like Edith Ann, um, so to see Lily Tomlin in this film, and I think she gives such a beautiful, she's unbelievable, isn't yeah. she so, so good. good? So good. Yeah. If nothing else, 
people should who are listening to this should just like go back and watch so you can see how good Lily Tomlin is. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, yeah, this was just, this opened my mind to a different style of film. Um, and, you know, I have never taken like film history or film criticism classes. And I'm a person who has big gaping holes in my movie <laughs> viewing. Um, and so I, you know, there's still so many movies I haven't seen, but this was definitely a moment I was in high school when I saw this movie and it just opened up um, a whole vision of what films I didn't really know about 70s cinema, I guess mm-hmm. was looking back on it. Now I didn't really know about, that True. at all. And so this was, this movie was a revelation to me and the cast was so good. And, um, yeah. And, and it, and it just made me excited about acting. Um, and it made me excited about movies. Um, yeah. For people who are not familiar, this is, uh, Nashville is like basically a three hour movie. Um, again, 24 characters, uh, Every scene has a, you know, an original song uh, following all these characters, musicians. It's, it's really like, um, you know, for those who are not familiar with Robert Altman, the best way to say it is classic Robert Altman. Like uh, Gillian said, people are talking over each other and all sort of stuff. Um, even now, like you can see like so many huge influences uh, that this movie has and Altman has on people. Like I know Paul Thomas Anderson specifically has said, if people call me the young uh, Bobby Altman, I am totally mm-hmm. fine with that. Uh, Richard Linklater, I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. influence. Christopher Guest, uh, yeah. you know, for like A Mighty Wind. Um, why do you think uh, his style or this film is like so, you know, impactful among so many of the like, you know, directors of our time right now? Well, to me, when I saw it, it felt like it was breaking rules, unspoken rules about dialogue Mm -hmm. and story and character. Um, And it felt closer to people just existing in scenes. Um, And it was, and it felt like it was like, um, he was creating a tapestry of a time. And it was sort of like telling a story collectively through a lot of little moments and characters rather than following one protagonist straight through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think maybe it, for me and for people who've been inspired by him, it was like just a, a, a different way of making things. And also I have to say, he's like a casting genius. Yes. Um, Shelley Duvall, oh, like, so I, good. I, I mean, I, I just encourage people to watch as many, you know, I think people know her very well from The The Shining, Shining. but I would encourage people to watch her movies with Robert Altman because I think that she is incredible. Three Women is another um, Altman movie Mm -hmm. that I saw and made a profound impact on me. And she is incredible in that movie, as is Sissy Spacek. So I think that um, Altman also just had a knack for casting. And um, you just felt like he was finding these people and then letting them exist. And even though your brain knows very well who Lily Tomlin is and has seen her in a different way, it feels almost like a documentary mm-hmm. of of this person, Um so yeah, I think that also I just got excited seeing all these um actors performances in his films yeah, as and, well. Yeah, and Altman is pretty famous for the way that he cast people in his films. Like he wouldn't do 
monologue reads or anything like that. He would mm-hmm. almost do interviews from what I understand where he would just like talk to the person uh, and just kind of see what their vibe was like. And so for this, uh, apparently the script was very, very loose, kind of just like very structural. You need to get from point A to point B. Uh, all the music was apparently he had the actual actors write and perform their own songs. Terrifying. Uh, which is, which, oh my God. Which is Terrifying. unbelievable, especially considering how great uh, a lot of the songs are. I mean, Lily Tomlin has a great yeah. number in the opening. Uh, like I said earlier, Keith Carradine has a really beautiful song that went on to win uh, the Academy Award. And then he even had them sing live as well. So none, all the audio that you see them performing is not pre-recorded. Everything was live. Uh, and it really, again, like you said, makes it feel like a documentary in, in so many ways. It makes it so much more real. Would you ever be interested in doing any singing roles or anything like that? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, you know, I I don't know if it's like a hang-up. Like, I, I think at some point when I was a kid, I, I decided I wasn't good at math, and therefore I was never good at math. <laughs> and, um, and as a child, someone told me that I should never sing in public, and so I decided oh. that I have a very bad voice. Um, so it would be like a true challenge for me. Um, and I remember they would, I, I, I had to sing on community, but I always found a way to make it the fact that I couldn't sing the point. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, when you said that the actors had to write their own songs, my palms started sweating. So, uh, uh, so, so, so you'd prefer one where the songs were written for you. That would, that would be the ideal situation. Or maybe if I wrote it, I could write it for my own vocal limitations. Oh, it <laughs> so it'd be like a two note song. <laughs> So there's so many characters in the film. Do you have any particular favorite uh, characters or, or yes. moments from it? Yes, please tell me. Uh, Geraldine Chaplin uh, as the British documentary. Yes, as Opal. <laughs> yes, yes, Opal. That that one, um, uh, I, as I said, Shelley Duvall in anything ever. And, mm-hmm. um, and I just remember Lily Tomlin being a revelation to yes. me. Um, and I also just, you know was late to learning about, uh, Julie Christie. Mm, So mm -hmm. also just seeing Julie Christie and a lot of seventies films. Um, and I just think she's remarkable as well. Yeah. Opal. She, she's so funny. Like she's again, for those who are familiar, she is a, a journalist from the BBC, uh, coming to cover a a piece on, uh, the event happening in Nashville, that kind of the, the film circles around. Uh, and every line she has is just so funny. Like when they go up mm-hmm. to a house, she goes, Oh, it's so Bergman. Uh, <laughs> and, and then, you know, she, she like, at one point she wakes up in a hotel room. She goes, Oh, I, I woke up and I thought I was in Israel, but obviously by the decor, it's not. And they're just like in this like dingy, like motel or whatever. I mean, she's so good in such a character. Um, but my favorite moment, and I'm glad we're lying on this is, is Lily Tomlin when she's watching. I'm easy being performed. Mm-hmm. And she's just sitting at that bar staring, uh, and Keith Carradine, and he's staring back at her, and there's like there's like a slow zoom, and uh, like it's 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 really really beautiful, and and something that's you know you know why she's such a star, and and that was her, yeah. and that was her first film role too. Um, I mean Altman had to like Woo! press her to do it, and she's phenomenal. It's 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 really really crazy. Yeah, Ooh, I just got chills. <laughs> oh, uh, she's so good. Uh, she she is so great. Best Picture nominees in 1975. This was nominated, but it didn't win. Okay. Co-nominees. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm. Barry Lyndon, mm. Dog Day Afternoon, mm. and Jaws. Whoa. What a year. What a year, right? What a year. Like, wow. how, how can, I mean, you can't, you can't go wrong with any of those movies, but, no. um, you know, it, it, it is a shame that Nashville, like, 
among those four and maybe be- among those five, maybe because it is like obviously different than a lot of mm-hmm. movies, it, it it falls under the radar in like that hierarchy and canon of seventies like classic films. We're well. I think this podcast is going to change Thank all that. You. Okay, that's. I'm gonna. We need that sound bite. Perfect. That's what we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and you talked a little bit about how you love uh, Robert Altman. Are there any other Robert Altman movies you think you you would want to recommend or, or for for people to watch? Well, I really like Three Women. It's it's very different. It's very strange. It's funny that I didn't remember that part where she's saying this is very Bergman esque because I think Three Women is kind of his homage to Bergman. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, another standard answer I have when I at, when asked about like favorite movies is Fanny and Alexander. Yes. But I think you've already talked about that. Oh, on this you've podcast. done your research too. Yes, you yes. have. <laughs> yes. So that is usually my go-to um, answer um, because that is a moment where I was completely. It was like a lightning bolt for me seeing Fanny and Alexander um, and Bergman, um, and so I, I do feel like there's a kinship maybe between three women and persona and, um, and, and Bergman films. Perfect. So that is 1975's Nashville. Again, by Robert Alban, literally a, a classic. I mean, critics were saying at the time that there was no film more American since Citizen Kane, um, mm. which is pretty high praise for any movie. So if you haven't seen it, block out three hours, sit down <laughs> and watch it. It'll be worth your time. I did want to talk about two more things before we get to your last pick. So I know you've been doing a scripted podcast called Blood Ties, and season two yes. is out now. Do you want to talk about that quickly? Yeah, it's on wherever you get podcasts. Is that how they always yeah. promo podcasts? <laughs> they, they list like five different things, and then or wherever you get podcasts, and there's an infinite. You, amount of I'm places. sure you've memorized that by now. Yes, you can Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yes. You know? So it's. Um, it's season two is out now. It's produced by Wondery, who makes, I think, a lot of great mm-hmm. podcasts. It stars myself, Josh Gad. Uh, it's got a great cast. So what uh, do it's you got think is cast. the biggest difference between how you act on screen and how you have to act uh, in this new-ish form of scripted podcasts? Um, I really enjoy – I mean – I enjoy selfishly doing scripted podcasts because it required no hair or makeup. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I think the thing that they did really smartly for this was they still had us act together. So you got oh, that experience okay. of being in a scene. So for season one, we were able to record in person together. And for this season, um, we recorded a few months ago, but we would be on a zoom type platform. And so we were in real time doing the scenes together. So I think I kind of got the best of both both worlds. Yeah. And then you also were just letting us know that you directed an episode, uh, of an upcoming Marvel document documentary series, uh, called six one six. So what, what is that about? I've actually haven't heard about this show yet. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be on Disney plus, um, and each episode is a completely separate standalone, um, little documentary episode, different director, different subject, different everything. So mine, um, is one of them. Um, and it's, uh, sort of about women who've worked at Marvel comics as writers, editors, artists over the decades. I love that. Sorry. Are you a big comic book fan? No, I knew nothing about comic books (laughs) before I started working on this, but I took it very seriously. Um, and so I, I got a subscription to Marvel unlimited and I read as many comics as I could. And I tried to read 
not every comic the women I was interviewing had uh, had written or edited or um, illustrated or inked. I've learned all kinds mm-hmm. of color of a yeah, comic. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I I tried to you know respectfully uh, read as much as I can and um, learn about the history of the of the comic book industry as much as I could. So I, I learned a tremendous amount working on the episode. What comics or or which characters did you find yourself connecting with or wanting to go back and read more of? Well, Ms. Marvel, um, mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. current iteration of it, um, and I know there's going to be a Disney Plus uh, scripted TV show of Ms. Marvel, um, Kamala Khan, and mm-hmm. I love that one. Um, and then uh, one that I read a lot of and that I wish I had found as a child is Power Pack. I don't know if you ever read Power Pack. Mm, no, I'm not familiar with it Power was, Pack. It was from the 80s and it was aimed at a younger audience and it was kind of unique at the time in that it was a comic aimed at younger kids. Um, okay. And uh, Louise Simonson and June Brigman uh, co-created it um, and a writer and artist. And uh, I was just really charmed by it and it, and it made me wish that I had read Power Pack as a kid um, because I really loved it. I'll have to add Power Pack to my reading list because I haven't heard of it. Um, And there's no release date for this yet, so we'll be sure to keep an eye out for it uh, once that comes out. So let's go to your last film. Very excited about this one. This is 1990s classic Home Alone, uh, 7.6 out of 10, 449,000 ratings on IMDb, directed by Chris Columbus, written by John Hughes, starring Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, John Hurd, and Catherine O'Hara, among others. The plot line, for those who are unfamiliar, is uh, an eight-year-old troublemaker must protect his house from a pair of burglars when he is accidentally left home by his parents over Christmas vacation. So talk to me. When was the first time you saw Home Alone? I probably saw it in the theater. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what I was alluding to with uh, realizing that children could be actors. Um, And I, I mean, it's a fantastic movie that is super entertaining, but I think I was also struck by the fact that a child was starring in a movie and a child was a movie star. And I remember when Macaulay Culkin hosted SNL and I was so jealous of him. Um, And he was a kid and he was starring in movies, and that blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, is this a sort of movie where you throw it on every every year as well? Like, is this an annual Christmas watch for you or anything like that? It's not annual, but it's one of those movies where you realize, like, it just embedded so deeply into your brain and so many different scenes just instantly embedded for all the films that I've seen and forgotten. I don't know what it is, what it was the age that I was, the fact that like as a child, you're seeing a movie where a kid is having all these adventures, um, watching him come up with like all the tricks to try to evade the burglars, whatever it is about it, it just feels like it really imprinted on my brain. I don't know. Did you see it as a kid? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I've loved it. Uh, Ever since I saw it, I had it on VHS, and it was definitely like a watch all the time, not even just around Christmas for me. I like <clears throat> when I was younger. I remember I used to draw like battle maps for my house, being like, "If someone breaks in, this is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my toys here by the door and all, <laughs> all this sort of stuff." I mean, it really just captures your imagination in a different way. Had you um, been taking acting classes or doing like theater camps or anything at that before you saw Home Alone at all? I don't remember if I had started taking acting classes yet. Um, I, but it, it made me very jealous. Right. Uh, I was very jealous of him. 
<laughs> um, and I remember there were like a couple of movies that I went to open call auditions for as a kid. Like they must have been doing like a national search sure. for kids. And one of them was Curly Sue. Do you remember that movie? No, Curly, Curly Sue. Sue. I think I, – did I say it wrong? I'll have to look it up. Um and I didn't really understand how um, auditions worked. I thought if you went in, you got it. Um, <laughs> also, a John Hughes movie. I've never even heard yeah. of this. Okay. Okay. So, well, so this, the, she's like a wisecracking kid, right? Uh-huh. And I think a big thing it is, is she smokes. And I just vividly <laughs> remember going into this open call, like hundreds of kids in Pittsburgh. Clearly they're like going across the country. Right. And I just remember walking into the audition and go, I won't be smoking for this film. <laughs> and just, <laughs> just, just being like, no, I, this is my role now. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're going to change something fundamental to the part for me, or you're going to be so charmed by me saying that, that you're going to, I did not get the part, obviously. Um, but I think maybe seeing Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone or did this come out before Home Alone? I can't remember. It might have, but it, said um, it was ninety one, so it probably it came out like right after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, yeah. I just, I was like, kids can be in movies. <laughs> yeah, I feel like people always forget, and probably just because the movie is so obviously Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, and Daniel Stern. Uh, this always falls out that that John Hughes wrote this movie. Um, I, yeah, you know, it, it's so funny that this is, I mean, obviously it's not like the Brat Pack canon of, of those movies, but it, it is definitely like among his most loved films. Um, I, I always wish th- that that would come up a little bit more and that he would have done some more kid oriented things. I guess, uh, Curly Sue was, was, was up there with it as well. Cause that was written and directed by him. That was, that was my chance. Um, you know what? And now that you're saying that I'm realizing that the Catherine O'Hara storyline in this is kind of planes, trains and automobiles esque mm-hmm. where she's on this, like, you know, she's on this quest to get back home and she's having all these travel things go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I was not a kid who watched, um, the, I mean, I, I, as a kid, though, I think the only John Hughes movies I watched were this and Ferris Bueller's Day mm, Off, which mm. had another similar like um, lo-fi tricks yeah. on adults. Yeah. And maybe that's just what I really liked as a child, <laughs> like Ferris Bueller with the um, the keyboard and the, the snoring. Like, yeah, when you open yes, the door, yeah. it rolls over. I yeah. really liked that stuff as a child. That really, that really resonated for me. Yeah, he he, he captured uh, innocent mischief uh, very yeah. very well. Uh, so Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, mm-hmm. they like went into this movie thinking like this is just going to be a complete flop. Like they mm. they like they over they purposely overacted every part. Um, and, you know, Joe Pesci, he wasn't allowed to swear, so that's why he's running, going, making his, like, his, like, mumbling. Um, but it, it works perfectly. There's some sort of, like, nice serendipity uh, behind moments like that. Like, it's, it's what makes it work, right? I think they're great together in the movie. And, yeah, like I said, I, to me, I, I don't know how Joe Pesci would feel about, like, you know, as a child, this is what I associated him <laughs> with. This was the performance. This was the film. This is what I knew. But I think he's terrific in it. And you know what? Daniel Stern then played my dad on Love. Right, right. So, so I got actually to... got to work with him, um, and he was phenomenal. Did, did, yeah. it, um, did you talk about Home Alone? Did you... I, I, I bit my tongue. <laughs> I, you know. Yeah, keep it professional, right? <laughs> keep it professional. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but, yeah, I, I – 
got to work with him and he's terrific. All right. So before we wrap here, so we have a Midsummer Night's Dream, Nashville, and Home Alone. Uh, what, <laughs> what, what, is, what is the through line you see here between these, <laughs> these three films? <laughs> what does this say about me? Um, I like different types of movies. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I I, I wanted to be honest about yeah, the no, fact that I liked I liked you know something some things that were more um, I felt like genre pushing like Nashville to me that felt like a different type of movie than I'd seen uh, the the Shakespeare one. I feel like it made me excited about acting um, and and Home Alone. I mean, I I didn't want to pretend like I don't like popular movies. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I love Home Alone. Yeah, I, I loved Home Alone as a child. And so I don't know what it is, but these are three movies where I definitely remember the movie starting and it felt like, whoa. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, that works for me. Also, <laughs> I think this, you know, the the blend of genres and your blend of uh, the different types of uh, of films and acting is probably why you were attached to community and work so well. I mean, community is basically all these different things rolled into one. So all these little influences along the way is probably what brought you to be like, Hey, I can, I would love a show like this. And lo and behold, but then I have to tell you so many times I had no idea what we were referencing on community. (laughs) And I would like watch the episode with friends later and they'd be laughing and be like, Oh, that's great. And I'd be like, what? I don't get it. Like I had never seen die hard when we did the paintball episode. Like, so um, for as many things as I had seen, there were, I didn't get a lot of jokes on the show. I realized later I didn't get the references. Um, So yeah, I, I'll, um, I am still learning what we are referencing on community. Uh, Yeah. We had Joel on, I think the second episode of this podcast and um, this was before the table read. Now we are post table Mm -hmm. read. Are we any closer to, the next phase, a next part of community <laughs> that you can say? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Are we? <laughs> Hope. Say it on the podcast and it will be true. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, well then I will say we're all hoping that this is uh, the beginning of the next phase. Thank you so much. This was a ton, a ton of fun. Um, so I used to go here, comes out August 7th. Um, any any last things other than watch it and tell 10 friends to watch it as well? Oh, yeah. Maybe tell 20 friends. Tell 20 friends. Perfect. Thank you so much for having yep. me. Yep. All right. Have a good one. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to head over to imdb.com slash podcasts for more content on Gillian and to easily add the movies that changed her life to your IMDb watch list.